0: Welcome back to The Dad Chronicle. I'm your host, Alex Albisu. This is episode 64. Now, as a reminder, you can support this show by becoming a patron. Head to thedadchronicle.com, click that button at the top to become a patron, and check out all the cool new patron levels that are available. On today's episode, I talk to my father-in-law, Colonel Douglas Smash Urovich. My father-in-law is one of the most fascinating people that I know. He spent 30-plus years in the Marine Corps, survived multiple combat tours, and is a dedicated father and grandfather. I invited him over for dinner, and while dinner was cooking upstairs, we talked a bit about how he survived a harrowing ejection and crash out of an airplane. Deanna says, well, yeah, that was my daddy. I know about that. His airplane turned upside down and he fell out. We talked a bit about some of the challenges that come along with being deployed and having a family back home. So you never saw pictures of your wife and daughter
1: you know, tacked up to the uh, inside of the airplane, you know, and you were flying with them in mind. I, I didn't do that. And I couldn't afford to do that because of the responsibilities of doing what I was doing at the time I was doing it.
0: And we also talk about the importance of serving your country.
1: There are many, many, many people who have made that sacrifice for deployed and have not come back. So the focus on your mission gives you a greater certainty, hopefully, that you will come back.
0: Here's my conversation with my father-in-law. Smash, thank you for being on the Dad Chronicle. It's been a long time coming. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Yeah. So we're getting ready to cook some dinner upstairs, and we are going to talk a bit about fatherhood. We're going to uh, then, after talking about fatherhood, eat some chitika which is some sausage. What's the is it a Polish sausage? What is it?
1: I think it's middle European. You can check um how it's made and it comes from you know Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia. Yeah.
0: Um this is that's like it's like prime. There's a Polish piece too. Yeah.
1: I mean, if you look at it, there was so many sausages made in middle Europe that fit the bill.
0: It's just what I grew up with for holiday season. And we and every holiday season for the people listening at home, smash your hooks us up with uh, how many did we get this this time around? We got like six Chuticas and about seven things of red sausages. Yeah, I order usually about
1: uh, 24 Chuticas and about 100 red sausages from a meat company on the east side of Cleveland that my dad used to deal with. Oh,
0: so good. And it just tastes like Christmas time, but I could eat it all year yeah,
1: round. Yeah, it was Christmas and Easter for yeah. us. I mean... Um, You know, the interesting piece growing up in Northeast Ohio was my dad was the oldest and my mother was the oldest. And if you look at where my grandparents lived and drew a circle around that house of about a mile and a half, everybody was still there. Amazing. So you'd always get together after Mass on Sundays or Christmas Eve at one place and Christmas Day at the other. And throwing some stuffed cabbage and some potatoes and... Good old hearty Ohioan uh, yeah.
0: uh, festivities.
1: Well, I always kid people, you know. I mean, mom and dad bowled a lot, and I kind of learned how to shoot pool in the bowling alley, and then got better in the Marine Corps. But yeah. I kid people that, you know, growing up, you always thought maybe a seven-course meal was a six-pack and a ring of bologna, so... <laughs>
0: And uh, you've had your fair share of interesting meals, especially being in the Marine Corps. You, I've heard some stories, and we'll, we'll dive into yeah. some of your time in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, in case it wasn't mentioned at the top of this show during the pre-roll, you're my father-in-law. You, uh, how long have we known each other now? Uh, s- two thousand and four. Two thousand four. So uh, in the neighborhood. I mean, seriously, fifteen years. Yeah, two thousand three. I
1: think or four. You met uh, Deanna and. We moved into that neighborhood for in 2003, but then I moved out of the house a little bit before that, and you know stayed away for about three or four years. But yeah, so about 15 years. Yeah,
0: it's been a heck of a ride. I can't believe <laughs> here we are. Uh, uh, I have a daughter, and you have a granddaughter 15 years later, and you, you 30 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, you've you had some post uh, Marine Corps. Jobs here and there. Now you're just kind of living, probably one of the best retired lives somebody could could uh, could hope for. So we're going to dive into all that. Um, first, why don't we talk a little bit about the Marine Corps? What why why did you join the Marine Corps, and what year was it that you joined? Uh,
1: 1975. And you know, I think the point was there was always a challenge there. Um, I had two uncles. If I remember right, they were both sergeants in the Marine Corps and they were, uh, I think they were in Vietnam. At least that's what I I thought I remembered. But, you know, I I got through Catholic school and I was uh, taught for the most part by uh, black Franciscans. You know, and anybody who understands the Catholic religion, you have black Franciscans, you have brown Franciscans, you have Jesuits. We had black Franciscans, Mm -hmm. so the Order of St. Francis. And Mm -hmm. um, I think my mom and a few of the nuns wanted me to be a priest. Um, And you
0: actually considered that? At one point, didn't you? I
1: think some th- somebody applied for me to go to seminary and I just decided to pick a different religion and uh <laughs> the I stayed with the Ca- United States of course, Marine Corps. you know, I stayed with the Catholic Church and yeah and uh but yeah, I there's a different religion in my life and that's the United States Marine Corps and you and know, the Ohio State University. Yeah, and it's a way of life. That's exactly right. both of those are, <laughs> those
0: so. things. Well, we'll likely, you'll likely, folks at home, hear us talking a little bit about Ohio State here yeah. and there in this conversation. Well, but anyway, I, I joined the Marine
1: Corps in 1975. Uh, um, I I talked to the recruiter in 1975 in April. You know, and if you go back and look, um, I think they were pushing helicopters off. Um, the embassy in Saigon, and you were really wrapping up the Vietnam War. Yeah. And, um, but it took a quarter college grades to then get to where I had raised my hand and and really established myself under contract with the Marine Corps, and that was the twentieth of December, nineteen seventy five. So, you know, I stayed as an undergraduate, and when I graduated from Ohio State, I was commissioned as second lieutenant in seventy nine, and then I retired in the thirty first of August in two thousand and six. Did you expect to stay in the Marine Corps as long as you did? No. In fact, I talked to separations probably four times. But, um, you know, once I went to officer candidate school in the summer of 76 and I came back to Ohio State and I took the money, they they offered a stipend of $100 a, a, um, a month, I was there. If I didn't graduate from Ohio State, I would have to go to boot camp to Paris Island Mm -hmm. and be an enlisted Marine. And if you go back to talking to the recruiter who was a sergeant in Lorain, Ohio, my mother who worked at McDonald's, you probably remember all that story was a part-time job from 1971 for 29 years. She worked at the McDonald's on the East coast and knew this sergeant. I don't remember his name. And at the time I was dating, a young lady, and her older sister was dating a guy from Admiral King High School who was also in the platoon leaders class. So that's how I found out about the program. Because I had written a letter to Ohio State, I was interested in getting involved with the ROTC unit until I learned about the the platoon leaders class. Mm-hmm. So I walked downtown Lorraine, which isn't a big town to begin with, even when the steel mill was fully up at 8,000 people. And I talked to the sergeant, you know, 1975, long blonde hair, you know, reasonably good shape, uh, but I was already accepted to college. They just didn't know that. And, you know, you always get the, don't go talk to a Marine recruiter without a priest, you know, without a lawyer, you you name it, right? So I go in there, (laughs) I know this guy, and I said, hey, I just learned about the PLC program from um, an individual who went to Admiral King High School. And um, I said, I'd like to join the PLC program. And what I didn't know was there was a bunch of Marines from the recruiting district and the region that were there. And this guy walks out of the shadows. He's got uh, more stripes than a zebra and the star in the middle of it, which means he's a sergeant major. But mm. I didn't know he was a sergeant major I just, you know. So... He started talking to me and what makes you think you can be a Marine officer? You know, we don't even know you're accepted to college, all this stuff. And we went back and forth, and you kind of know how I am. And I looked at him and I said, Sergeant, you know, which you don't do to a Sergeant Major, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that. I didn't know that, yeah. Um, Sergeant, if I'm going in the Marine Corps, I'm going with bars on my shoulders and not stripes on my arms. <laughs> How did and he take that? He looked over at the sergeant, and he said, he's cocky enough to be a Marine. Send him to Cleveland. Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. So Hilarious. I, went, I went to Cleveland, uh, talked to the officer, selection officer. That's what a no-so is. And I uh, went down and did uh, 15 pull-ups, uh, 80 sit-ups, and then I ran a 5-minute-and-30-second mile on East 9th and Euclid in about zero-degree temperature. Oof. So my dad even talks about how cold it was cuz he took me down there. Yeah. And then going home mom wasn't real happy that I joined the Marine Corps, but you know, years later she came became uh, a great public affairs officer for me.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. She was, yeah, she was real proud and they used to brag at Lorraine that they were, I was the only officer they ever put in to that recruiting station's office. So,
0: what that's funny. That is funny. Now, you ended up Joining the Marine Corps, did you know that you wanted to fly at that point? Well, the,
1: the platoon leader's class program had three subsets. One okay. was ground, one was aviation, and the other one was law. And I joined as early as possible. Uh, not that I knew that, but mm-hmm. you needed one-quarter college grades to be able to join the program. And then also you had to take the, what was the AQTFAR and I don't remember the acronym, okay. but it's the Flight Aptitude uh, Exam. Okay,
0: okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha.
1: So, you know, you have what they call GCT test, which is basically an IQ. You take that later. But initially, when you apply, you take the AQTFAR, and I think they've renamed it, but it checks your aptitude. And I did reasonably well in high school, um, so I passed to where I got accepted into the PLC Air Program. Wow. Um why did I want to do that? Nobody else has flown in my family. Nobody flies.
0: My dad didn't fly, but um, and your dad was in the Air Force.
1: Yeah, he was an air policeman in the Air Force right. um, during the Korean time, and and he was uh, was he, he deployed was, to Korea? No, he was stationed in France.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and now you ended up going actually into Top Gun, and a lot of people are like, "Oh, Top Gun the the movie." No, yeah. no, we're talking about, like, Top Gun's like a real thing, guys. I don't yeah, know.
1: the movie was done on a real competitive school, but, you know, to get to Top Gun, you you know, after PLC air, and then you go to college, and you graduate in the Marine Corps, you got to go to Quantico and do six months as a ground officer, learn how to dress, learn how to inspect, learn how to be a leader, and then you go to Pensacola and start flight school. Then after that, again, everything's a meritocracy. You know, mm-hmm. It's how well you do and what the service needs. You have to go um, to your training, sc- get selected for fighters, and then you have to go out and be successful in that squadron. You have to work through being a good fighter pilot, learn those skills. Then you have to learn to lead two planes, and then you have to learn to lead four planes. And then you have to get air combat tactics instructor qualified, and then you can be one of the two or three people in a given cycle to be looked at to go to Top Gun. Mm. And then the CO makes that determination, and then you go to Top Gun if, if that's it. So the year I went was 1985, and uh, in my class we had four F-14 Tomcat crews from the Navy, and we had four F-4 crews in the Marine Corps. So it was... You know, four Tomcat guy, four Tomcats went out there, and four phantoms went out there, and then, you know, the movie came out in 1986. You were all heroes by accident, yeah. Um, but and most, you got to
0: meet Tom Cruise, didn't you?
1: I I crossed him once in the O Club, and uh, but yeah, that was, uh, you know, from a real the guy who really flew the airplanes point of view. He was he was an actor playing yeah the game. So oh yeah. Um, but no, it was, at the time, it was the most dynamic thing I did in my career. It was very competitive. Um, one of my Navy classmates ended up being an astronaut. Um...
0: And you actually had some interest in being an astronaut, didn't you?
1: Yeah, that's another here. So you got to set the stage, right? You just keep meeting these criteria. Right. Or criterion. Um... But to be a test pilot, you have to have either a math degree, an engineering degree, or a physics degree for the most part. To get to test pilot school, then you have to graduate from test pilot school. And then you apply to the astronaut program. And at the time, I was accepted from the Marine Corps' selection process. It was 91 and 93, and the space shuttle was still flying. You know, I took two years of Russian at Ohio State thinking that would have probably helped. But, um, you know, NASA would get 5,300 applications for 25 slots. Wow, jeez. Now, they have to be- represent everybody. Mm-hmm. So you were really, if you were in the Marine Corps, you were competing against Marines who were accepted by the Marine Board going down there. So if you go back and look at that history time frame of what NASA selected, um, you will probably always see a Marine representative. So... While across the board, those numbers are daunting. If you just look at the messages of what the Marine Corps selected for pilots and mission commanders, and if you wanted to be considered for both, you mm-hmm. could. Um, so ninety one, I was I was selected by the Marine Corps, but I didn't get a final interview down there. Um, ninety two, as we know, that was the ejection. Yeah, and. You know they'll never t- tell you why you didn't or didn't get picked. You did or didn't, um, but you know you don't need to have
0: somebody that had kind of that situation, right? Um, and you know I kind of want I want to get into the ejection, but before we do that, an important event takes place uh, in on May sixth of nineteen eighty nine. You become a father.
1: Yeah, and flip that back about. A couple years, nineteen eighty six. I get married. So exactly, uh, you know. But yeah, we have Deanna. You know, your wife. And uh, you know, what was that
0: like for you? I mean, you you were already in the Marine Corps at that point. Um, Married. uh, Donna goes through a a hell of a cultural shift from where she was living and is now a Marine wife. Um, And you guys have a newborn moving across the country. She was born in. uh, Deanna was born in. California you guys are moving cross country and just uh what was it what was the story it's a couple of weeks after she was born and she ended up living in a in a dresser drawer well right? she
1: slept a couple of times in a dresser drawer yeah. but yeah she was uh I was leaving Lemoore because I'd been an F18 instructor out there and got picked to go to test pilot school and um we were leaving Lemoore to make the class date start in 1989 in Pentuxa Pat- River, Maryland yeah Deanna was born early, a couple weeks, because I was like, okay, you know, as soon as she's ready and the doctor clears, we're going to move. So, um, that was a real, you know, it was, I had already been in the Marine Corps seven years before I got married. Mm -hmm. And then we got married in 86. We moved from Buford, South Carolina to Lamar, California. And that was a culture shock for Donna for sure. But she adapted really well. Oh yeah. Um,
0: Donna's one of the most resilient people.
1: She is. She's very and um I've known. she's she's been through um a lot of hell to be honest with you, just kind of putting up with the situations we went through and things yeah. like that. But so get back to Deanna. She uh, shows up on uh five six eighty nine and within two weeks we're moving.
0: Amazing. Um and what was that like for you guys having a newborn moving cross country?
1: Well, what ended up happening is, um, you know, it's not a surprise that the baby shows up. So, for the, the 10 months or so before that, and we were going back and forth across the country to visit family. So, mm-hmm. at the time, Lamar is kind of out of the way. So, if you come back to Cleveland or you come back to Youngstown, you fly in somewhere if you fly back to Denver and then you fly to San Francisco, you can always sit and wait a couple hours and get two extra flights. United would, would give that. So, mm-hmm. you know, we collected a few of those. And on, on the time, what I had in the bank was, uh, after she was born and cleared after two weeks, then I took one of those tickets and Donna flew out of Fresno to, back to Northeast Ohio to stay with her mom and dad Mm -hmm. and the baby while I moved the household from California to Maryland. Mm -hmm. Now she had a tough, they got delayed. She was running out of uh, diapers. I think she was down to her last one, you know, and, um, but I stayed back with the household and moved the whole household. And then probably the most aggressive move we've ever had. I, uh, I ended up, helping the gent who owned the truck because he only had a young man who was about 18 18 years old at the time to move this whole household. And I was like, he didn't look like he was going to be able to move a lot of that gear. So basically he paid me $10 an hour for 10 hours to help him load my gear on his truck. Then he didn't have enough room, so he had to go back to Fallon and then come back to pick up the rest of it. And then I worked with his dispatcher as I drove across the country. He drove across the country to get to Pax River. I didn't even go to Ohio. We went to Pax River because I was trying to close on a house on arrival and move in with the truck.
0: Holy cow. That is a logistical nightmare.
1: And it worked to a point until the real estate agent came representing the seller, said, You haven't signed a release. You gotta stop moving. Now we're halfway into the house. Huh. <laughs> so I said, I'll sign the release, you know, and I won't hold him liable yeah. because we're closing on the next day. Yeah. So that's how that
0: worked. Whew. Well, you're out on it on the other side, and you you spent quite a bit of time in test pilot school. I want to, I want to, or te- as a test pilot, I should say.
1: Yeah, I did. T- you uh, For the Marines, you go through test pilot school, which is a year. Yeah. And then you have the ability to stay at Pax River doing test work for three years. That's mm-hmm. how it was when I was
0: there. And in Pax River, that's where the ejection happened.
1: Yeah, right. First uh, of October, nineteen
0: ninety-two. I, I want to talk about that uh, very briefly because you know th- there's a stark memory that that we often talk about in the family about your ejection. It was a somewhat a traumatic experience. <laughs> you know, I mean you. Uh, Without going, I guess, too far ahead, it was it was a tough thing for Deanna to see, and we'll get to that. And I, I want to learn a little bit more um, about that. Before we do that, do you mind explaining to the listeners what happened with the ejection?
1: Well, in essence, uh, three problems with the airplane that we didn't know about, but I attempted to take an arrested landing which is put the hook down and and land at Patuxent River. Mm -hmm. And in close to the ground, the airplane rudder system failed, and the airplane yawed, kicked off. And I'm looking at the runway out of the side. Mm. So we get back airborne, and and the F-18 had an FCS reset, which is kind of like a control-alt-delete on your computer. Just reset it, but it was instantaneous to reset the flight controls. And they took for a minute, and then what happened was the rudder pack failed again Mm-mm. at 500 feet, and the airplane went knife edge. We were in a two-place Hornet, and I knew the guy really well, who was lieutenant colonel. I was a major at the time. The airplane knife edges. He punches us out, so the sequence begins. Canopy goes. We roll. He leaves at the airplane inverted at 480 feet, and by the time... It comes back through. I get shot into the ground from three hundred and eighty feet and get about eighty percent of the shoot. so I always tell somebody if you're watching it was probably a wily e. coyote moment mm. it was a real fast ride but a real sudden stop and i yeah. I left one hell of a divot so yeah
0: you uh still have all the scars and and some of that pain even from that ejection
1: well, as you get older, you know things. Yeah, I do have plates and screws in my leg. Um, I had my shoulder replaced here recently. I still have six cracked discs that I do a lot of rehab on from the ejection because I kind of went out sideways. Um, And the other piece was it took him about 10 years to figure out while I had this consistent pain on my left side, and it was a physical therapist up in Bethesda who accidentally reset my left rib cage that had been dislocated for 10 years Holy of about cow. a quarter to a half an inch and that was just scar tissue that he popped and popped it back into place Was that and
0: instant relief? No, that was instant pain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was honestly more pain than the ejection sitting on the ground there because people heard it it popped it was so loud. Oh my god. And I just sat, you know, picture yourself on a physical therapy face down and this guy's just working out you know all the scar tissue in the in the back and the and then he st- he was he was pushing down and cranking right pushing down Ugh. and it just went you know it was it was I liken it to hearing a tire blow I mean that's how loud it was people came really? into the room and said what just happened he goes are you okay and I go give me a minute <laughs> <You know? laughs> so um, then after after starting to do some physical therapy with that then it was relief because yeah. I was having. You know, you want to get attention in a hospital. Be a forty-some-year-old guy who walks in and goes, "Hey, you know, my left chest hurts." You know, you're going to get some attention. Oh yeah. So yeah.
0: yeah. Now, after you ejected, you know, you were taken to the hospital. Obviously, you. you well, were there treated. was an emergency
1: room at Pax River. Right. It's wasn't really a hospital. Oh okay. And
0: um. And I I often hear how you were just some. Black and blue body. Well, yeah, by the time I got this, in there, it
1: was on a Thursday morning. So, yeah, I was picture I'm on a backboard because what happens as they finally found me in the field, I thought I was going to get run over by the ambulance because I heard it in these waist high weeds in the middle of Pax River. Mm-hmm. So I tried to stand up with my helmet, taking it off. What I remember, what I really got angry with is there's an emergency oxygen bottle that goes off when the seat comes out of the airplane. Mm -hmm. You know, It takes you longer to decide to get out of an airplane than it does to get out of the airplane. Mm. And I didn't pull the handle, Mm -hmm. but that was a part of briefing and compartmentalization. So I try to stand up. I can't stand up because my leg's broken. Mm -hmm. Um, Were both your legs broken or just one? No, just the just the right one. Yeah. So as I tried to stand up, I felt... Okay, and I got some stuff. I got shoot wrapped around me, but that didn't break my leg. And then these people just showed up out of nowhere, you know? And they go, we found him! we found him!" And, you know, the next thing I knew, you know, it's the first of October, about 9.38 in the morning. I think the temperature was 52 degrees. And they cut everything off me, except Oof. for my underwear. Yeah. You know? And... Put my leg in a, in a uh, plastic cast. They put a backboard underneath me. They put me in a neck brace because... And my amplifier that's in, much like the microphones, is in my mask, ripped my chin off. Ugh. I mean, just, you know, it was road rash. My chin was off. So, um, you know, all that being said, by the time they get me in the ambulance and take me over to what was not really a hospital at Pax River, um, it was a clinic... That they looked to evaluate me to get me, as initially was thought, in a helicopter to go up to Bethesda. But it took them to almost four o'clock in the afternoon to put me in the back of an ambulance to drive up Route Four, go over the Beltway to get to Bethesda. Oh my God.
0: So you're just, you got no choice but to just, re- I mean, did they have you on meds? Like no. anything to, ooh. and, you know, fast forward, uh, Donna and Deanna show up. Deanna. Well, I don't see Deanna until Sunday morning. Oh, really? So okay. It takes them until
1: Saturday morning because some anesthesiologists and some this or some that. Um, but I finally get into surgery, I think, Saturday morning, and they fix my leg. I remember waking up about Saturday night, and uh, to this day I won't eat split pea soup because I think I had that for three days. Ooh. And then it was Sunday morning, and... Um, I don't want to miss anybody. I I know my mom and dad got there. I'm pretty sure I know Don and Joanne got there. My Uncle Jack was there. Um, But Deanna came running into the room, and she looked at me, and I had to look like 10 miles of beat-up road, and she screamed and ran out. Yeah. Now, I was up real early, um, like four, uh, because my whole time clock was a mess, and I still had burrs in my ass from Pax River, to be honest with you. Mm. You know the bed was a mess, so and I was dirty, so I, you know, much like I did when I was a kid in 1972, I hobbled out of my bed after I had my knee surgery, worked my way over to the shower, got myself in the shower, kept my plastic leg out, mm-hmm. and just kind of turned the water on and sat there and um, cleaned off. So then about six o'clock the day shift came on nurse comes in and goes major it's time to clean you up and i had shaved except for around here cuz all it was was yeah, around my chin, chin was yeah. just um broad rash cuz that 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 microphone the amplifier just Shoot, ripped you take it all a,
0: off yeah you take a razor to that yeah. it's not going back yeah, on so
1: you know that was and she goes she goes how would you get in the shower oh, i said like i told you same thing I, same way i did in 1972 20 years ago she goes, if you get out of this bed again, and, and I said, I've heard this all before, but thank you for your concern. So then... Um, and
0: well, what did you, did Deanna Donna had come been, around? Donna or? had
1: been up there. Deanna was, uh, I think, down at Pax River until, I think, Donna and Joanne, I think Donna and Joanne brought her up.
0: And Joanne, just for everybody listening, is, is uh, Donna's, Donna's mom. Yeah,
1: yeah, mom and dad. So... You know, and it's like now, you know, like with your daughter, when we get to see her, you know, I've seen, I saw more Sesame Street after 30 with Deanna and we used to watch it on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing now, I'm seeing Sesame Street again after 60 when, when Aria comes over and, and uh, so I was sitting there, you know, watching Sesame Street, you know, till they came in. Just kind of remembering uh, because I had no idea what the future was going to bring. And when she ran in, she screamed and ran right out. Right. Because I just, I looked a mess. Yeah. I was black and blue from my nose to my navel and chin was road rashed, you know, and, uh, you know, the legs in a cast and it's not the dad that she saw, Mm -hmm. you know, so what? It was nice. She was three and a half. And, um, Story back at Pax River, and I think it was either in a shopping center or at the school um, that they were talking about, you know, the accident at Pax River and all that. And Deanna says, Well, yeah, that was my daddy. I know about that. His airplane turned
0: upside down and he fell out. <laughs> what an innocent way to look at yeah. it. Yeah. And I take, I mean, yeah. So you, you were out of commission for a while. How much? Uh, How much Sesame Street did you end up watching while? uh, Well, I was on some meds finally after all that,
1: and you know, um, so
0: that so meds mixed with Sesame Street, I'm sure makes for some interesting. uh, Plus, I (laughs) you know
1: it's October in Pax River, and you know, I um, I would sit out in the backyard in the lawn chair with my Rottweiler Titan, you know, and he'd just look at me, knowing that I was just a mess, and you know they're. They're going through the mishap investigation. You don't know if you have a future, but from really one October to probably the Marine Corps birthday, which is ten November, you know you maintain the status as a community leper because they don't know mm. who's responsible. What happened? And what I was that
0: like for you? Was that disheartening? Was no,
1: because it- I I knew what we did and how we did it, and yeah. I thought you know we could withstand the scrutiny. Yeah, and. Uh, You know, Wizard, who was in my backseat. You know, anybody who's prematurely gray in Marine fighters is either going to have a call sign of Wizard or Gandalf. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Wizard had been an instructor of mine 11 years before that, and he was in the backseat who got me out. And um, he's the same time frame as Smoke, so you've met Smoke. Okay. So, you know, put that kind of in there. And for
0: people who have listened to America's Next Top podcast, or if you guys heard my entry involving Cindy, that's smoke's wife
1: and smoke burgess was you know arguably a, a vietnam hero he won't tell you that he flew with the purple foxes he was a 66 year group you know um what
0: a guy to learn from
1: yeah he pinned my wings on me yeah. and uh, yeah so in beaufort Beeville, i'm sorry Beeville, texas you know smoke was the senior marine he was the guy that you first met as a second or first lieutenant showing up and mm-hmm he was the legacy of the Marine Corps you were stepping into. Mm.
0: What shoes to fill.
1: Yeah, and you realize that. I mean, in Marine Aviation or the Marine Corps writ large, you are stepping into a legacy that's been built over, you know, I signed in the Marine Corps in 1975, and the Corps was founded in 1775 in a bar. Mm -hmm. So I thought, what a great organization. So, you know, but you understand the legacy. And when you show up at Pax River— And you walk into the Marine Air Detachment, the first thing you see there is, you know, John Glenn in the Gemini 7 space capsule. Yeah. And a kid from Ohio who later in life had the ability to meet John Glenn and Neil Armstrong on a couple occasions, you know, those are the people that you really aspired to be.
0: What about those two individuals inspired you most?
1: Well, I just, I. I think it was, they were they were both successful naval aviators to begin with. You know, most people, if you really read about John Glenn, he was an ace. You mm-hmm. know, he was a fighter pilot. And, you know, Neil Armstrong, just through the position that he got to be the first man on the moon, and, you know, it all looked nice and calm on TV, kind of. But the more you read about the history of it, the more courage that both of those, and that whole astronaut piece, I'm just... I bring those two guys out because they're from Ohio, and and we've had quality representation in the White House from Ohio, plus um, astronauts. But you know, I always thought you you I didn't grow up wanting to do that. You meet this level of metrics like i said you join the marine corps you get the flight school Mm -hmm. you get to be a fighter pilot you get to be a test pilot because you have a technical aspect then you got to get selected and then you go down there and then you got to get selected and then you have to be successful Mm -hmm. and those those guys through the time and competition and what they did with their basic naval aviator skills you know um made world history and um
0: And you yourself have made some history,
1: yeah. And I I
0: think I think that's worth noting. And and like them, you're probably going to downplay it a little bit, but it's kind of a big deal. Um, you know, if we were to fast forward a bit, uh, before you retire, uh, you became the first Marine. Is it is the terminology CAG?
1: Yeah, I was a commander of Carrier Wing Nine, and you know, historically there were the tailhook did a real good article in their magazine historically there were two other marines who for a short period of time and i think one was a major in the korean war and the other one was a lieutenant colonel in maybe the vietnam war they they were the senior folks in the air wing because of some things that happened in combat that they took over the air wing commander duties but As far as the Navy and the Marine Corps having a board represented with generals and admirals to pick somebody to be a Marine who was a carrier air wing commander, Uh, that board, if I remember right, happened on the 2nd of December 2002, and all that was done on purpose. So, yeah, I was picked for that. I was a chief staff officer, carrier air wing one for a while on deployment, and then I was a deputy commander, carrier air wing nine on deployment, and then I was the Commander Carrier Air
0: Wing 9. How many deployments are under your belt now?
1: I mean, I did uh, carrier deployments on the USS America, which was the last America deployment, CV-66. I did a carrier deployment on the USS John F. Kennedy, uh, CV-67. Um, I did a carrier deployment on the Carl Vincent, CVN-70. And then I was slated to go on the John C Stennis. When I decided to retire, I did Westpac deployments as a Phantom guy. I did uh, European deployment to Aviano for Bosnia in '94. Um, so I think my sea service deployment medal count is six. Hmm. So it's a lot. Yeah, it it was well. I mean, that's what Marines do. Uh, you know, it's. Um, when you look at uh, Lance Corporal Smith or Lance Corporal Jones or young Marines who are 18 or 19 years old and they have an 18 year old wife and they have an 18 month old uh, son or daughter, you know, it's harder for them on the separation because they might be a little less stable than a family entity when mm-hmm. we first started. I know the, the separation time for Donna first half was it was really hard
0: um and do you mind if we talk about that a little bit i'm i'm interested in knowing a bit more about what it was like for you and and the family being separated for i mean cumulatively it was years yeah it was years i mean of the
1: of the three that I really moved out of the house right after I met you just to do the air wing job, because Donna wasn't going to go back to Lamore and neither was Deanna. And, you know, I took Deanna out to Lemoore in 2006 to show her where she was born. And then we went to San Diego and she's like, well, Dad, how come you never got down here to San Diego?
0: So, you well, know, was that also the same time that you were eating uh, Cocoa Puffs and water? No, that was in college. Oh, was, that was in college. Yeah, I was okay. doing
1: college. yeah that was different. All right. Oh, the MREs. I got used to that, and you know, you know the folks in the neighborhood. They they kid me all the time. I could live off cardboard. So, but um, now the, the family separation, I always thought was just kind of a way of life, and um, unfortunately, or I don't know, maybe I didn't pay enough attention to that because the first few times that Donna came to visit as we met in, in Cherry Point she'd visited in Yuma you know so she had an idea what the marine corps was about but until you until you get into it so you know she got hard fast and mm-hmm. um you know the times I was deployed out of Beaufort you know the house flooded a couple times you know and nowadays the marines really can't separate because of social media and email and all that back then you know, when I went to Japan, Korea, the Philippines, and I was dating Donna, you were always where you were, you had to wait for mail call. Um, or you made long distance phone calls, whether you called collect or you, you know, but because you didn't have cell phones or any of that. So everything was based on, you know, snail mail, waiting for the bag to drop in the carrier or getting sent over to Osan or Kunsan or whatever. So now everything's electronic, and it happens a little, lot faster. So the young Marines know if the baby's sick, the truck doesn't start, the battery's dead, the house had a problem, and you have a tough time extracting yourself
0: from that to focus on the mission forward deployed. Um, Yeah, that seems like an interesting double-edged sword, because here you are, obviously you're in wartime, and there's a need to kind of stay focused, but... It's hard to separate yourself from the family, and and here you actually have an opportunity to stay tied to family. So, do you see that as a detriment these days, or do you see it as a good thing?
1: I don't consider it a detriment. I I think it's an emotional pull. You know, you see the ads on TV where, you know, um, they're talking on a video, uh, whatever whatever medium you want to see your wife or your your significant other and mm-hmm. husband. And they talk about having the baby, and the whole platoon knows, and you know, everybody's crying. It was really great. The real issue is it, you know, they always refer to this in the Marine Corps. Well, that's a leadership issue. So, how do you handle that? Hmm. Because, you know, in industry, it's really not your business to know what's going on in your household and my family. All right. Um, As a squadron CO, as an air wing CO that has 1,700 people, you try to meet most of them. As a squadron CO, you can. You have 250 Marines and a group Mm -hmm. of augments. Um, But it's just something you have to understand is happening around you with technology, and you have to take that into account on how you want to lead your Marines because you really do have a forward deployed mission to deal Mm -hmm. with. Now, aviation's a bit different than the ground combat element um, because those guys, you know, most of aviation, the forward-deployed combat entities, especially in carrier aviation and, and fighters, is are the officers who fly the airplanes. Mm-hmm. The folks on the carriers should be defended um, by positioning or other assets. So mm-hmm. are they really in harm's way? One could argue... They haven't been for a while, yeah. But there can always be that situation, um,
0: so that it's not. It's a matter of. Well, I think you you say it all the time. What is it? Identify, over uh, ad- adapt, improvise, and overcome. There it is.
1: Yeah. So you know that's if you remember uh, Clint Eastwood in Heartbreak Ridge, you know and they couldn't figure out what shirt to wear because he'd come out. You have to adapt, improvise, and overcome. But you really do have to find solutions to the problems for your marines. Yeah.
0: Um, So it's just a matter of shifting. It's a matter of finding out how to how to overcome that uh, potential uh, the the potential issues. I think it.
1: it. I think it can be used as a real morale booster. But on the other hand, you have to understand that there's a compartmentalization issue that you have to deal with and focus on the mission at hand Mm -hmm. because a divided focus at a time when you're trying to land on a carrier or you're going into a situation where you're getting shot at, you know, I always kid people, you know, cause I'm a flight instructor now. I said, you know, I didn't fly with my ring. And most of the time, if you went over, you know, bad guy country, you sanitized everything anyway. Mm-hmm. You didn't have packages. You didn't have rank. You had your ID, you know, you didn't take, you know, so you never saw pictures of your wife and daughter you know, tacked up to the uh, inside of the airplane, you know, and you were flying with them in mind. I, I didn't do that and mm-hmm. I couldn't afford to do that because of the responsibilities of doing what I was doing at the time I was doing it. You right. Know,
0: so now you spent 30 years in the Marine Corps. You decided to retire after a very, uh, just amazing career uh, in the Marine Corps. What were some of the reasons for retirement?
1: Well, you know, you talk about making history and um, you know, being handpicked to be the, the Marine CAG, right? I had a, a Marine mentor right about the time I got picked to be a test pilot. So, you know, a test pilot, they're going to talk to you about being a golden arm, and, you what know, a, what's a golden arm? It's, you know, you're the guy who can fly the oh, data okay. points, you know, gotcha. I never liked that term, but that's a throwback term. Um But he told me, he says, you know, they're going to tell you you're handpicked and you're a golden arm. Uh, just remember, uh, they also handpicked strawberries and boogers and you don't look like a strawberry. So, <laughs> you know, don't don't believe your own press clippings, you know, uh, don't write your own press clippings because, you uh, you know, things have a tendency to change. So, I mean, when I got picked to be the CAG, I had a lot of people talking. I had people drive by the house, and you've been to the house, mm-hmm. and I'd be cutting the lawn, and and they'd peep the horn, and I'd look, and, you know, I'd turn the mower off, take my earplugs out, and they said, hey, I'm so-and-so, you know, General so-and-so, or, you know, I was retired colonel so-and-so. This stuff's really important. Don't screw it up to the Marine Corps. And I said, okay. And I kind of knew that because of what I was doing in the Pentagon and the whole thing. But I got a lot of that. And then as we went forward, you know, just about the time I took over the air wing in January of 2006, um, the Brigadier General Board let out, and I was Mm non-selected. So, you know, I'd moved out of the house for about three years, kind of came back and forth. But, you know, I had this discussion with Deanna that I just said, you know, I promised her I would be home for her high school graduation. And if you look at the time frame, if I have stayed on for that other deployment as a carrier air wing commander, being non-selected for brigadier, I would have been deployed probably from February of 2007 to August of 2007. So I wouldn't have made it. yeah. So, you know, after after the uh, message came out, I had a few calls and emails from a few generals in the Marine Corps. And, you know, then my dad, I talked to my dad and I talked to my brother, Danny, who was in the Marine Corps. And, um, you know, you couldn't ask Donna what to do or what do you want me to do? Because if she just said, well, I want you to retire. And if I was miserable, then I always, you know, there was always that, well, you could blame it on me. And I didn't want to do that. So, you know, I went to church in Lemoore on base um, a lot. So I knew everybody there. I didn't want to go sit there. So I went out town to Hanford, or city of Lemoore. It was the city of Lemoore. There's a Catholic church there. And I sat there for about three hours. I went through a whole bunch of stuff, said a lot of prayers, went through a boat. And it was finally, it dawned on me that the, the only right decision to do to, one, keep my promise to Deanna and realized I could be on deployment and come back and be a passed-over Brigadier General and then be real angry for the second time was to go into the Marine Air Detachment and put in my retirement papers. Yeah. And that's kind of what I ended up doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that is a, you know, I know that meant a lot to Deanna. I know that meant a lot to Donna. Um, you know, we've talked about that numerous times.
1: Yeah, but you also know me from about 06 through maybe 08 or 09, well, I did go to work for S.A.I.C. because Smoke was there and a few other people. I was a pretty angry man, not so much at what I had here, but what I didn't have there, and um,
0: didn't have there as an S.A.I.C. No, in the Marine Corps. In the Marine Corps.
1: Yeah, yeah but I looked at a lot of people. I had a lot of uh, a lot of respect for. You know, Smoke got passed a couple times. I can uh, yeah. I can run down a list of people that I served in the Marine Corps with who were senior that never made that cut either. And um, looking back on it, it probably took me eight to 10 years to realize finally that it was no kid in the right. It took me at least five years to say, cause I was still getting feedback at SAIC about things, but it was the right thing to do. And first off, you know, um, just sitting here today might not happen. It's true i made other decisions
0: yeah so that's yeah yeah and i mean if you look back at the last uh, or at your 30 years in the marine corps would you have chosen any other time to retire
1: i did um like i said i probably talked to separations four times the fourth time was for the CAG and it was interesting because it was real comical um if uh because when I did call them and tell them I was going to retire, and they go, well, you should, you should talk to the Marine Corps, make sure they're planning your relief. And I go, they're, they're not planning my relief. <laughs> I already know that because they're not putting another one in yeah, here. Like, in on. fact, I had a general officer ask me who ended up being a commandant. He goes, if we were going to pick another one, who would you recommend? And I said, I'm not putting anybody through what you guys put me through. You do the selection board, and you pick the one you want. So I didn't offer anybody. In fact, I got thank you cards from a couple of my contemporaries when I did take the job.
0: Really? Uh, yeah.
1: So, well, the first time coming out of flight school with with Smoke Burgess and Beeville, I was a Harrier pilot. And um, you can read the whole case file on that. Um, I went from being one of the top one percenters to basically a triding out of that program. Um. So they sent me to Hams 32, headquarters of maintenance squadron, and I flew the OA-4 Mike for a while, and then somebody determined that they canceled my orders to Yuma because I was supposed to go there to be a Harrier pilot in oh, Yuma, okay. and they sent me there to go to Phantoms. Mm. So that was my new lease on life, but I didn't know what was going to happen. So I talked to East Carolina University, the Pirates, to go be a math teacher because that's what I had done, and then the next thing I know you know, I talked to career planner, MMOA 4, which is Manpower Management Officer Assignments at Headquarters Marine Corps. There are a bunch of sets, but 4 was career planning. And um, then this message came out and sent me to Yuma to start F4 training. Mm-hmm. So that was one. There was one other time that kind of got... There was a situation that developed, and I, I really don't want to go into that, but I called him again. And then... um the other one was a cursory because they asked me to advance degree program and I didn't want any part of that because of payback in the Marine Corps, which would have taken me out of the cockpit. And then finally, when I decided to retire after yeah. non-selection, that was the last time I just called yeah. them in. I do a lot of career days at, at junior high schools and high schools and even my contemporaries. And I go, if you look at it, um, you know, and some of the folks in the neighborhood that I won't mention, but you know them and, yeah. you know. I start to add up everything I wanted to do. And I look at my batting average. I'm a little bit under the Mendoza line. And for you baseball fans, that's about 200, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I wasn't successful being a Harrier pilot. um, But I ended up doing all right in the fighter community. It took me three looks to be a test pilot. So I went for three there, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I never did get big to be an astronaut, so I was 0 for X there. I was 0 for 1 for being a brigadier general. So when you start adding up the math of that, you know, I think I'm I'm batting about um, now. You know, Jason in the neighborhood and people go, Well, you're talking about aspirations at yeah. this level versus yeah.
0: Let's be real.
1: But yeah, but so that's It's still a hell of a career. Those were my targets. Yeah. 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 And that no, I have I if as I wrote part of a personal experience monograph, which I think you read Thunder One years ago, if you hadn't. Oh yeah, I think years yeah. ago. So I man, I wrote it in two thousand and one. But um, if you look at it on paper, and if I I wrote the book, it would be you know that the Marine KAG, not a career path, a survival trek. So yeah. I mean, there were some turns in the road there that you just had to, and and the way I used to counsel people that had had issues in their career was I had enough mm-hmm. and type A personalities, you know, you need to lay some up tighter and, and know you're trying to re regain other people's confidence, your ability to accomplish the mission um, expectations of yourself and expectations as a leader, leading Marines because they have expectations on you you know, you don't want to let your Marines down. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. I when I look back on it, I'm very proud of what I got to do. I'm very yeah. proud of how I did it. Uh, and,
0: um, at this and do you ever think back in those thirty years and just say, "I wish I did this differently"?
1: No, I, I'm not a big remorse guy. Look back and go, "I I could have did something different, better." I think, you know, a defining point was the ejection. Yeah. As I said, when I went through Top Gun, it's probably the most dynamic thing I did in eighty five. Yeah. Test pilot school was a different type of pressure. You had three things going at the same time, let alone I had, you know, a new baby, you know, and tried to spend time with her. Mm-hmm. I used to tell people I got a lot done from three thirty in the morning till eight o'clock academic wise, you know, with with my undergraduate degrees, my master's degrees and then finally finished up my doctorate. But The idea is you just continue to take advantage of the opportunities presented to you. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to John Glenn, and John Glenn was not a big guy on Heroes. (laughs) John Glenn, right? Yeah. He would always say that you are really tasked to use your abilities as much as God's given them to you to the best of your ability, and you'll produce what you can produce. Now. He's kind of, I paraphrased that, and we were at the 50th anniversary of Americans in Space back at Ohio State. And at the same point, he said, there's only one man in this world I have ever envied. And he pointed in the audience right to Neil Armstrong. So you can wow. see the competition aspect of seeing somebody who's accomplished something that you had were aspirations. Um, I just kept hitting levels. And every time I hit a level, there was another opportunity, and I tried to take advantage of it. And you know, and it it became it was very rewarding and a very successful career.
0: Good, good. I'm glad you. I'm glad that uh, you know. It's it's oftentimes you hear about people thinking about the what if this, what if that. Certainly, marine well, military life in general can take a toll on family. Um, Was there ever a situation where you wish you would have done something differently in in regards to family
1: well it's funny there you know you've been to youngstown and, and she has a lot of family up there
0: yeah that's where donna's family lives yeah folks who listen youngstown ohio Yeah.
1: so it's a steel town just like i grew up in lorraine a mm-hmm. steel town and um there was some criticism within the family that I never paid enough attention to the family from about the 10 to 15 year mark, not from our direct family, but how I met Don. And and then after that, after I got to 20 and 25 years, then there was some, well, maybe I should have done that. Because remember, I was, I joined the Marine Corps right as Vietnam was winding down and The 70s were all about the hate and discontent left over from the 60s, especially when you look at the unique year that was 1968. So a lot of people at the time was I was wasting my life. Mm. So then years later, you look back on it. And I've had job interviews where you look at my resume and you look at my education and they go, one could accuse you of being a professional student I said, look between the years of the education, you'll see there was a lot of doing. Mm-hmm. So it's your perspective. Um, yeah. I, don't th- I don't think I, like I said, I might have thought different if Donna hadn't gotten as strong as she did as fast as she did. Mm-hmm. And you see how Deanna is, you know, and she'd be happy to tell you she had 18 years as a Marine brat and still is. But, um, and I always kid people that you know my daughter's got uh, mom's plumbing and dad's attitude. So. Right,
0: and uh, and a granddaughter with similar attitude. Yeah,
1: and she's got a lot of you there too, oh, and, yeah. and your family. But
0: yeah, it's an interesting but dynamic you, to is, watch her and <laughs> the tantrums. Yeah. The, uh, oh. <laughs> well, just
1: like today when we brought her over here, and and she's like, "Hey, pa!" And she's got this ice cream cone just teasing me
0: with it going look what i got got." so
1: you know at two years old she's she's stepping into it
0: now what's it like being a a, now you're on the other end of this whole uh marine corps thing daughter gets married to to some guy who lived down the street you get a granddaughter out of the deal what's it like at this point in life you're 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 like semi-retired you're I well, retired planes. yeah
1: I've retired twice you know yeah. I've retired from the marine Corps I got some VA money coming in because I got beat up and
0: um you're teaching people how to fly now yeah
1: I spent 11 years in industry so I kind of started my own business I have that contract for aviation consulting but you know my primary hobby at this point in time is I'm teaching 17 year olds up to 71 year olds how to fly you know in Manassas Virginia and we fly a variety of different airplanes. I fly Cessna 150s, 52s, 172s, DA20s, DA40s, Piper Warriors, Piper Archers, Piper Arrows, an Aztec, a Baron. So, oh my God. so you know, many. it gives you a variety. And, I you know, you've flown with me once. Yeah. And, um, you know, another, another decent year teaching out there, and I'll break 5,000 hours since I started flying in... August of
0: 1980. Wow. it's a lot. And being a grandfather, what's that like for you?
1: It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, I didn't know. I never looked at that um, or thought much about it until, you know, I think you two came over the one day with the small Ohio State shoes, and Donna was like, oh, you know how Donna handles oh, yeah. things. And I just... <laughs> I shook your hand, kissed Deanna, shook your hand, and and said, "Please don't tell me you don't know how this happened." But uh, <laughs> I still don't know. Yeah, I need somebody to explain but, it to um, me sometime. No, watching her being with her, I you, know, I cherish uh, all those moments because you know the unique thing here is your mom and dad's local, and Maya and um, Deanna's mom and dad's local, and mm-hmm. when we had Deanna and I was always moving. She only got to see her grandparents on kind of that scheduled summer vacation or the holidays. So go back to what I told you about my grandparents. Everybody was in about a two, three-mile radius, and my dad's mom and dad were maybe 10 miles away. So it wasn't like you have this situation where... It's special, man. Yeah, it is. It is. um, And every time... You know, we get to see her a couple of weeks later or, you know, the changes are so drastic at yeah. this age that, you know, the new words, um, the new books she wants you to read, uh, counting, you know, like I said, it's a redo of Sesame Street over 60 now, where Sesame it's Street It's like the circle of 30. life, man. Yeah. You got yeah.
0: Sesame Street on one end and Sesame Street on the other. It's yeah. forever. Yeah. And uh, it's got a lot better. It's gotten a lot better from when we from when Deann and I were kids.
1: Yeah, but that's you have more. You know, I watch her with an iPad now. Aria, two that's years true. old. You know, she can leaf through pictures and point people out, and it's wild. You know, um, I was lucky to program in a in a computer in high school in Fortran four with data cards. Yeah, so <laughs> you know, it's the things have changed.
0: So. It is incredible. And
1: it will do that again in another leaps and bounds by the time she gets married and has a daughter and you're a grandfather.
0: God, I can't even think about that. And you
1: can't think about it. That's what I said.
0: But it's weird. It happens. Yeah, because now now look at it. You got your daughter upstairs with her own daughter. It's a weird thing. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a weird... Now, I like to end the show on a sort of a words of wisdom. And if you were to think about, if you were to reflect on, if somebody's listening to this who is a uh, who's deployed or somebody who's in the service who is um, going through their own sacrifices in the name of our country, what's what sort of words of wisdom, encouragement would you provide them around fatherhood and that balance?
1: Well, I think you have to realize that for the time that you're out there you've signed up for a mission and you accomplished that mission. There are many, many, many people who have made that sacrifice for deployed and have not come back. So the focus on your mission gives you a greater certainty, hopefully, that you will come back. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's much different. Granted, you are separated than being a first responder who deals with danger and effort and then they don't come back. Mm -hmm. Vice, a military deployment that you go out. You have extended contact now, uh, but you want to maintain the focus so that you can come back and be with your family. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a unique situation if you've signed in, especially to the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people who join the Marine Corps do it for a variety of reasons. Uh, we haven't had the draft, if I remember my dates right, since 1972 or 74. So it's been an all-volunteer force. Uh, you signed in. Uh, the Marine Corps is happy to have you. The country happy to have you. In all the services, I'm not just going to speak, you know, the Marine Corps. Anybody, yeah. Brian, as you had on this show, was a Coast, member of the Coast Guard for six years. My brother Danny was a Marine. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, as we talked about. So the piece is that's our duty. All mm-hmm. right. And um,
0: You gotta know what you signed up for.
1: Well, I you know, I used to have sailors and marines in my commands and and um, you know, you signed a contract mm-hmm. and and I know it's difficult, especially when you're when you're a younger Marine and probably have a younger wife or younger husband, and you're separated. And then you have a little baby. And the pressures of all that uh, get to push and pull, you know, on the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But as leaders at any level, sergeants, non-commissioned officers, senior staff NCOs, company-grade officers, or field-grade officers, you know, you need to listen to your Marines and help them try to solve their problems if you have that rapport with them. Mm -hmm. And you should if you know them well enough. But it's something Marines do. And... This country, for the most part now, treats military first responders much better than they were doing in 1974 and 75. So the pendulum has gone probably the correct way to where there's a large appreciation for what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I'm with the Military Officers Association of America, you know, helping veterans Mm -hmm. Um, trying to recognize young students in high schools for NJROTC, which is an amazing thing to me because I never would have participated in that in high school. It's uh, a heck
0: of an opportunity.
1: Yeah, it is. It it gives you a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity in the services um, across the board. And there are people who can take full advantage of that. What
0: do you think is the biggest quality takeaway that you've had from your service in the Marine Corps?
1: I think it's leadership. Yeah. I mean, the Marine Corps focuses on leadership. When I was teaching in business and still teaching, you know, I think the important things of Marine leadership is know yourself and seek self improvement and um, set the conditions for success and take care of your people. Yeah. Okay. And as I completed my doctorate and it was focused on leadership, there's a variety of subheadings on that. Some people think servant leadership is the best way, you know, the best thing that kind of reflects that. And you know, if you if you do a synopsis, you know, I used to kid people. I said, um, Marine leaders will be the last ones in the in the chow line, and they'll be the first ones in the vaccination line. Okay, you lead by example, and you make sure your your people get taken care of before you do. And and I think if you think along those lines then you're not going to be the person who grew up being, you know, I'm handpicked, I'm somebody special, look at me and treat me, you know. I, I think that's the wrong message inside of of uh, being a quality leader. And you want to deal with the rapport of people in a non-emergency situation and understand what they're about and let them know that when, you know, the fit hits the shan, mm-hmm. you know, that they can count on you as the leader that they were looking for. So
0: Now, very well said. Uh, our guest today has been Miss—well, hold on. Let's do the title right. Yeah. Do, do, uh, Dr. Colonel Douglas Smashirovich, or is it Colonel Doctor?
1: Well, I, I don't like the doctor title. So you um, just leave that off altogether? No, I just Special. put it at the back, comma, PhD. PhD, right? <laughs> so that was just—that was a an intrinsic— Piece for me at the end of my career that I always wanted to complete my PhD. I tried uh, at George Mason with uh, the mathematics program, and to be honest with you, at 58 years old, the, the kids over there were kicking my butt. So I ended up getting a business and technology PhD um, in IT management
0: and. Always be learning.
1: Yeah, you got to always be learning. Yep. And now I'm learning new airplanes, you know, at 62. So. Um <laughs> I might have forgotten more than a lot of them I'm teaching but that's okay.
0: That's so, fine. It's a it's a heck of a story. Well, thank you for sharing yours.
1: Well, I appreciate the offer to be on the Dad Chronicles. Thank you.
0: Special thanks goes out again to my father-in-law for sharing his really amazing story on this show. If you would like to chime in on any of the conversations that we've had here today, you can email the Dad Chronicle podcast at gmail.com if you'd like to follow me on social media it's at alex albisu last name is spelled a l b as in boy i s as in sam U. and remember you can support this show by becoming a patron head over to the dad click that become a patron button at the top check out all those cool levels we have there we'll see you next time if you like this show Check out more great content at incastmedianetwork.com.